it's interesting trusting the body and thinking it's all going to work out okay. You know, just as you saw, things can can fall apart quite easily. Although that was a uh, such a minor incident, but it just illustrates the point of how how fragile the body can be. I think for myself, coming into the monastic life, there were there were several reasons that I was interested in becoming a monk. One of them primarily was was dukkha, just sort of the dukkha I experienced in in everyday life, but especially around yeah, just just general discontent with the things that I sought to give happiness as as not not giving that, whether they were in the human relation realm or trying to get things in uh, from from the sensual realm becoming trying to you know project of being a better person whatever it was it was it was met with a sense of discontent but one of the other reasons that I think drew me so strongly to Buddhism was a fear around the death of the body and the ending of life and I remember just experiencing problems as I grew up with the body and always believing that there was some sort of biological means that the body was always going to be able to recover, be cured from any disease. And um, death was so far off as I grew up. It just didn't seem like uh, something so important. But every so often I would, I would think of death as a, as a child or as a young man, and it would become profoundly crippling in the mind. Not for very long, because I wouldn't let it go on for very long. But such a deep fear would arise that I didn't know really what to do with this. And I think it essentially came out of a extremely strong attachment to the body. And I could see this in, in just that attitude, as I was speaking of, that the body wasn't supposed to be prone to falling apart or getting sick. These were just temporary things that could be gotten over very quickly. But as I got older, this just became incompatible, this view with with reality. And especially as certain things started to happen to my body that were altering, uh, it just, it became quite painful to maintain an attitude and a perception of, of permanence. But it was interesting to see the just the kind of the silly perception that I had. It was around just everything's going to be okay, everything will get better. So I would maintain this throughout an injury or, or a problem that I might have. So when I went to go ordain as a monk, I basically resolved a lot of issues that I had had before ordaining. But I ended up needing to have a minor procedure on my hip. And again, it was met with this belief in modern medicine as just being able to cure the body. But as we know, uh, with the Buddhist teachings, especially how Ajahn Chah used to teach, Anicca uh, was was not sure. We don't really know what's going to happen. And especially something like surgery is really Russian roulette. You have no idea what's going to happen. You're just putting your trust into a doctor's hands. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. 
But in my case, it worked. But then in getting better, I managed to essentially break both of my feet. And what was interesting was how the mind took to that, that problem, that conundrum with the body falling apart. And again, it was met with a sense of, of denial, even though I was a Buddhist monk living in a monastery dealing with continual teachings around perception of death, the perception of change, encouragement to see the body as, as falling apart, as not self. And so it was, it was interesting to go through this, but it was just, I, I would attribute it to just being uh, my comma, something I had to go through. And what was unfortunate was I maintained a belief that through modern medicine, everything would be okay. I'd be all right. And these were the, the thoughts that I perpetuated in my mind. If I found the right doctor, the right conditions, at the right time, in the right place, then everything would be okay. I would get better. I mean, I might have even somehow brought in a perception that I'd get younger and stronger and um, seems very comical to me now, but then it wasn't. And so I'm, I'm bringing this up more as a, an interesting illustration around how we can conceive of the body in a certain way. And then even while it's showing us at the same time that it's, it's quite the opposite. I did go through with having surgery and it really came from a mind seeking a perception of permanence, a perception of Nietzsche, I would say. It wasn't un-Nietzsche. It was sure. And, and then, of course, things weren't sure. And I noticed the mind really, uh, there was quite a lot of turmoil in that. So setting up the mind with a sort of permanent perception of everything's going to be okay, it just ended up creating all kinds of conflict and difficulty. And I was very lucky to be, uh, to be a monk. I was very lucky to be in a monastery where the people around me were quite tolerant and also very helpful in encouraging me to, to change my perception and change my perceptions uh, around these, these issues. So I think it's interesting, one of the, the main insights that arose is that I had to, to come to grips with the fact that I was wrong and that the body is not a refuge and sickness occurs, it's very normal, and the body is going to continue to fall apart. And, and it's not necessarily in any way that modern medicine or whatever I do for myself to figure out how to possibly get better is going to actually amount to that. And what one of the main insights that, that I saw was that the proliferations around my mind questioned whether there was really a possibility of practicing Dhamma with an injured body. And so I could get quite stuck in these proliferations and, and believe them until one day something just arose quite spontaneously that broke down this perception. And I can't take credit for it at all. It, it doesn't, it, it, I can't say exactly where it came from, but it was just a realization one day that, that I was quite wrong that this perception of uh, not being able to practice the Dhamma while, while one is ill was quite erroneous. And even there was a possibility of seeing illness and, and aging 
as as something that was an aid to the practice that other people didn't necessarily have the opportunity to see so well. And that's taken that's taken a long time to develop that perception because the, the inclination of the mind is to always get better and to often think that someday when I don't have to deal with this, then practice will be easier. And actually maintaining that perception was uh, the, the opposite perception that uh, practice wasn't possible with a sick body uh, was quite was quite a painful perception to to um, try to maintain and 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 live with as a practitioner. And again, it was quite interesting because the teachings point so much to using the body, especially in in the Thai tradition, using illness and all the problems that we encounter to awaken, to to try to see the, the nature of the body. So often the monks in the, the Thai tradition, especially in the time of Ajahn Chah, they had to suffer a lot through disease, injuries, all kinds of things that occurred in the jungles where they were practicing, encountering wild animals and insects and, and all, all sorts of difficulties. And yet they persevered and practiced with that. But it's interesting to me to see sometimes how this little, as Ajahn Jeff calls this sort of committee member in the mind, will come up every now and again. It's sort of this voice that says, everything will be okay once I have a perfect body. And that's its, its sort of origin. That uh, It comes out of that. And it sounds ridiculous, but it's, it's just such an easy thing to, to buy into. And so recently just coming up with a sort of new injury it's easier to deal with now i can definitely see that just through through time not through necessarily any heroic effort just just the time of working with the perception around illness there is a bit of a um a part of the mind that just that isn't making a, a huge deal out of it and the last time in the monastery when this occurred at Bayagiri, when I, when I injured myself, uh, injured my feet, it, it only took three weeks to actually do that, to change my ability to walk for the rest of my life. And that was amazing to me, that the body could be so fragile as to change in three weeks. And of course, you know, one could just fall a foot and fall to the ground, actually, just from, just from standing if, if one fainted. And, and that could be it. That could be the end of life. So three weeks, 10 seconds, five seconds, it's all that possible. So these perceptions around our bodies that the Buddha is encouraging, whether it's contemplating the 32 parts or contemplating death, it can sometimes seem like it's sort of a, a side practice or something that's to be brought up you know, every now and again, but the encouragement of not only the, the Thai forest ajans, but, but the Buddha. In his famous sermon, for example, around how often one should be aware of death, was uh, for the Buddha's explanation around that was every in-breath and every out-breath to reflect on death. That would be the proper amount of time one could spend knowing that one was going to die, to bring that up. And so, you know, many of the Thai Ajans, they, they would make the recitation of the 32 parts their sole practice 
or contemplation of death. It can be seen as morbid, but it's not. It's, I think, very much counteracting an imbalance in the mind that occurs, as I've been illustrating with myself, that can really undermine the practice that the Buddha is encouraging us around with the Four Noble Truths, seeing how craving is really causing us to suffer. And a lot of that craving is based on the perception we have around our body and wanting our bodies to be permanent and especially identifying with the body. One of the supporters at Abhayagiri sent me a birthday card. Her birthday is about four months different from mine and we have the same birth year. And So every year she'd give me a birthday card and one of them was a quote from the Dhammapada and it went something like, this body ages and becomes sick, a disgusting, putrid mass of disease that eventually ends in death. Happy birthday. <laughs> I cut that out of the card. I've, I've had that on my shrine for many years. So if we weren't Buddhist practitioners, we might think that that is, you know, ridiculous. How would, how would you want to be reminded of something like that? But as practitioners, we know how important it is that this is the nature of the body. Its nature is to fall apart. Its nature is to get sick. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, our culture tells us that there's something wrong with that. Even... Um, I remember my sense around modern medicine and Western culture, I think I've read that there is a belief, a general belief, that the fact that people get sick and die is a failure of the medical system, uh, which, is, which is funny and uh, a bit bizarre. I even remember reading in a book that this doctor wrote about... I think I have this right. He, he said that one could not list old age as a reason for death. So old age is not a diagnosis. So death due to old age is not a possible diagnosis for, for what happens or, or determination for the cause of death. There has to be a reason. So even if a person dies at 110 years of age and there isn't like an overt kind of like heart attack or stroke, if they can't find the origin, they can't just say, well, they, they got old and died. There has to be an explanation. So in, in Thailand, the Thais are quite fortunate to be very exposed to death, uh, whereas in North America, it's, it's hard to be around, have experiences around a corpse, to be able to see a corpse, to see an autopsy, these are, these are kind of hard to, to come by in the West. And it's a bit unfortunate because then death is hidden and is mysterious in something other. Ajahn Pasano tells a story where some monks, elder monks, their cremation will be postponed for up to a year after their death. And I think that's not too uncommon. And so they'll need to preserve the body in some way. And so Ajahn Chah's body, for example, was preserved with tobacco leaves. And a year later, amazingly enough, he's in a tropical country, 
think the body would have rotted, but it wasn't uh, wasn't so different, supposedly. What was said is it wasn't so different from when he died a year later. The tobacco leaves had absorbed the, the fluid that had drained out of him. So when they burned him, it, it, it was... Uh, he was obviously corpse-like, but, but he hadn't changed that much. Another monk, they used concrete powder. And that was just what they, they decided to use to preserve him for a year. Well, that wasn't a very smart choice. Because as the liquids oozed out of his body, it then solidified the concrete. So when they brought in his corpse, uh, this is in a huge crowd of people, uh, they opened up the, the the casket and they saw a big block of concrete and they needed to cremate him. So this was a you know a fairly elder monk. And so the monks kind of talked talked with each other and trying to figure out what to do. And all the while there's all these all these people who've gathered, lady, other monks, and they're just kind of sitting there. And so then some of the monks disappear and then. A bunch of monks come back with chisels and hammers and they just start chiseling the body out. And what Ajahn Pasana said was that being in Thailand, it was like it meant nothing. Just everybody was just kind of talking with each other and nobody left. They just kind of waited for the event to happen. And, and it, was like, it was like nothing, no big deal. Just sort of like everyday kind of situation. So they eventually got the monks' corpse out which was probably interesting how it looked, and then and then burn the body. But the ties are exposed to this so much that death is not a huge deal for them. Uh, that's what I've uh, I've understood from ties who talked to me, as well as just what the uh, Ajans have have spoken about with the culture there. And I've often wondered what that perception might be like, just living in a way where maybe every week you go to a funeral, you see a corpse. You see a corpse burning every week or so. I don't know how often it is, but in the village it can be quite quite often, uh, if you're in a large village, to, to go to a monastery for these cremations. And so death just becomes a very normal part of life. So in North America we don't we don't have that opportunity, so we, we can though take the opportunity to to practice what the the Buddha taught around corpse contemplation and bringing up our own death and what it can be like for our own bodies to go through not only death immediately but the time leading up to death. Kimiya was talking about these talks from Ajanachalo and Ajanachalo goes through several Dhamma talks where he describes, he must have like 10 or between 10 and 20 of them where he describes different death scenes and they're very much in um, in a lot of detail so you're imagining your own death and it's quite it's quite informative to to go through that experience so i would highly suggest if you have time to listen to them or you can come up with your own and that's that's what the buddha is teaching although his teachings really start with once one's body no longer ceases to be alive the process it takes until all that's left is dust. The bones turn into dust. And it's just interesting to see what the mind does in that situation, bringing up this contemplation. Does it get distracted? 
Is it uninterested, fascinated? Does fear arise? Does no fear arise? Because it's in it's in a fair amount of detail that one is imagining one's corpse becoming different colors, the skin changing, the stiffening of the body, and then the relaxing, and eventually, quite quickly, actually, maggots taking apart the body and the body bloating and uh, being eaten by by maggots there's a lot of movement that actually occurs in the body the maggots can actually start sort of almost making the body animate because there's so much activity going on but eventually uh, just the, the the skin is no longer uh, it's just sort of falling apart until bones are exposed and then there's still flesh on them and sinews but those eventually disappear as well until there's just there's just bones and once the connective tissue is no longer there then they can become scattered about and then eventually eventually they fall apart just become dust in one of these short talks Ajahn Pasno gave, he said, this is the one sure thing that you have in your life. You're going to be obliterated into dust. So everything else that you think is a sure thing, it's just not, but this is. And so the, the, the helpfulness of this kind of recitation and this contemplation is to really examine one's attitudes, to really see is one able to maintain a, a sense of understanding around anicca, around impermanence, and around not-self. That's keeping this the, the idea of death and the understanding of death, the understanding of aging and sickness at bay, so that it's not really part of our reality. So we're using this contemplation along with the 32 parts contemplation to, to change that perception for ourselves so that we can have a greater insight into anicca and anatta and not-self and um, into impermanence. And so what that allows us to do essentially is uh, Ajahn Amaro quoted a, I believe it's a nun in the Christian tradition that one is learning how to die before one dies so that when one dies one doesn't die. And essentially, if, if you no longer have a perception of, of self in the khandas, and the perception of anicca has, has taken hold so firmly in the mind that it's understood clearly, then when one dies, there doesn't have to be dukkha, there doesn't have to be uh, suffering. It doesn't have to be a, a misperception around the reality of, of one's experience. So for myself as a monk, that was that was really one of the most important. Uh, it well is the most important interest I have in terms of pursuing this monastic life. The, the Dalai Lama was asked about why he became a monk, and he said he he became a monk to learn how to die. That's the the memory I have of his quote, or that he is learning to die. And it's, it's a helpful reminder for myself because it's very easy to forget it. It's, uh, 
the mind can be so diluted that it, it doesn't want to face that sometimes. So it's it's quite a, a helpful perception to to bring up death. I found as as much as possible, because otherwise, when it occurs, it's sort of like, you know, if you're if you're a Buddhist practitioner, it's sort of like getting into a boxing ring and the boxer starts hitting you, and you say, "What are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? This isn't supposed to happen." And other boxer says, "What are you talking about? You stepped into a boxing ring. You're, you got your boxing gloves on." And so, that's our task as practitioners. We're we're Buddhist practitioners, so we're we understand this is this is actually we've we've stepped into the ring. We've stepped into Mara's ring, and it's it's possible to be able to see clearly, so we're not deluded by Mara. So when death occurs, it's it's not really. I didn't think this was going to happen. So those are um, just some words of encouragement around one way of looking at our practice. And uh, yeah, if there's been anything in there that's been useful or helpful, please, again, take that with you. Otherwise, you can leave whatever has not been useful behind. Sadhu Karang Dhanamasi Sadhu